BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is David Swanson, the journalist, activist, campaign director over at RootsAction.org, the author of what I think is one of the most thought-provoking, provocative, and important books that I've read in the last 20 years, War is a Lie. Uh, It's really an extraordinary uh, uh, piece of work. Um, David, welcome back to the program. Uh, hi, Tom, and thanks for liking War is a Lie so much. Oh, it's, it's just, uh, I, I, well, as you know, I've been singing the praises of this book uh, for, what, it's been eight, ten years since you wrote it, something like that. It's, it's just, it's still remarkable. We have a link to your petition over at Roots Action on our Facebook page, and you started a petition having to do with guns that specifically references my book, so I guess you could say that this is kind of self-serving. I, I wasn't thinking of it that way until just now, realizing that how this might sound, but but I wrote this book, The Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment, because I'm horrified by the fact that 40,000 people died of gun violence last year and thought that you know we needed to talk about not only the situation and how we got here, but also what we can do. And you put forward a very specific petition. Tell us about that. Well, I enjoyed your book, as you know, and thought that your proposals were both substantive and significant and would have a big impact, but also so incredibly reasonable and rational and and moderate that nobody could possibly object. Whereas my inclination since the moment I ever heard about people being killed with guns was ban all the damn things. Your proposals, which we put into this petition to the governor of Virginia, who had called a special session of the General Assembly in the wake of yet another mass shooting that happened to be in Virginia, we put in there your basically your ideas to treat guns like cars that is have a title and registration have a license that requires passing tests have liability insurance required and on top of that treat semi-automatic weapons the same as automatic weapons in terms of bans and regulations we got over 5,000 people to sign it. People are still signing it. We still want more people to sign it at diy.rootsection.org. And we sent it to the governor of Virginia, who had drafted his own proposals. I don't know what you think of them. I thought they were pretty weak, although I liked one of them in particular. I mean, what was the one you liked? Well, the one I especially like was the one that says localities can do better than this crap job that we're doing at the state level. I like that. You know, I live here in Charlottesville where they, you know, refused to ban guns at a at a fascist rally two summers ago. And then on the one year anniversary last summer, they got it their act together and they banned every weapon under the sun except guns. You know, it, huh. it's just absurd. You, know, you couldn't bring a slingshot or a plastic fork or a camera, but you could bring a gun, you know, you know, an automatic. And and so I like that. I like that idea. And, and the others were sort of the better than nothing stuff that you get from the Democrats. Right. So you can only buy one handgun every 30 days. No, there's no title registration license. But if your gun is stolen, you have to report that. Or if your gun is lost, you have to report that. And it's stuff like that, which is better than nothing. But and and of course, the Republicans responded immediately on the opening of this big special session to deal with this crisis by shutting it down within two hours, ending it and declaring that they would do nothing. Yeah. Worse than nothing, actually. So you said DYI, as in do-it-yourself, dyi.rootsaction.org? 
yeah, this was a petition I put up sort of as an individual, although I work for RootFection.org on our do-it-yourself site, which people use all the time. It's DIY.RootSection.org. You make a petition and promote it, and hopefully we'll help you promote it. Are you getting feedback about these ideas? I, I, I've noticed that at least one member of Congress has now called for you know licensing of all gun owners. Another one has called for insurance for gun owners. I'm not sure that they're reading my book. I, you know, I've been talking about this stuff on the radio for at least a half a decade, maybe a decade. Just that simple idea of regulating guns like cars as a way of allowing for rational gun ownership. I mean, I talk in the book about, you know, one of my brothers is a gun enthusiast and I like to go target shooting with him and he's a vegetarian. I mean, <laughs> so it's not, it's not like hunting and stuff, but you know, we've got right. to find some kind of a middle ground where, well, I had a, a conservative call into my show a couple of days ago. He came to my book signing in Chicago, I think it was. And, you know, I gave a talk on this and, and he was like, hey, you know, I'm a conservative. I own guns. And I think your, your proposals are entirely reasonable. So what kind well, of I'm feedback are you getting? That's what I would expect. And, and you probably noticed uh, as well that Senator Cory Booker, who, who, by the way, I wouldn't elect a dog catcher, proposed something quite similar in presidential debate. There are some people picking up on these ideas or coming at them from somewhere. But response to our petition, you know, there are a handful of comments on the Web page underneath, all supportive. Uh, we get a number of emails that are supportive, but mostly we get people signing the petition. And 5,000 is a very good start. I think I'm sure another 5,000 will sign it. The question is, can we get the governor of Virginia or can we get anyone else in power around the United States or in Washington to actually act? You know, right. Because we've got, we've, we've got the Republicans openly and shamelessly owned by the gun lobby and the Democrats unwilling to do anything particularly significant, even when they're treating it as a major urgent uh, personal well, in the case In the case of Virginia, you've got Republican control of the lower chamber, so the Democrats can't pass legislation. Um, in, the, in the U.S. Congress, it's the same thing with the Senate. So even if they were inclined, I think, frankly, the Democratic Party has been intimidated by the NRA for a couple of decades now. You know, and the Republican Party, of course, is embraced by the NRA. But I also get the sense that that is going away. The tobacco industry, being the political animal that you are, I'm sure you're familiar with this, that in the late 90s, the most powerful lobby in the United States was the tobacco lobby. Nobody crossed the tobacco lobby. Mike Pence was writing op-eds about how tobacco doesn't cause cancer and publishing them in newspapers. They yeah. owned everybody. And Democrats, Republicans, right across the board, nobody was willing to do anything. And then in the 90s, these lawsuits came out and showed that not only did this industry kill a half a million, or I think it was 450,000 Americans a year in the late 90s, but they knew that they were doing it, and they had known that they were doing it since the 40s. They had known that uh, that nicotine was addictive since the 30s, and they had just been you know hiding this, covering it up. Now we're seeing b between lawsuits and good publicity from from you know uh, from the Parkland kids to to Gabby Gifford's group, um, we're realizing that the NRA and the and the weapons, the the death industry, the weapons manufacturing industry, are just as corrupt as the tobacco industry was, and you know arguably even more corrupt. I mean, this is explicitly killing people. You don't, even, you don't even have the pleasure of getting high from a gun like you can from a cigarette. So it seems to me like, like within five years, we're going to be looking back at the NRA the same way that in 2003, we were looking back at the tobacco lobby and saying, you know, now they're just noise in the background. What do you think? Well, I very much hope so. I don't dare make the, the prediction, uh, and I don't dare suggest that nobody gets high from their guns. Some of these people certainly seem to. But, yeah, that's true. But if there is a difference that the killing is not secret. You know, it's not as if we can have the revelation uh, that they knew guns were killing people. Everyone has always known the guns are killing people, uh, and yet it's it's justified and accepted somehow. Uh, and uh, I, I, I hope that the trend you're seeing is correct, and that that it goes after not just the guns domestically, but the weapons that are sold to militaries and dictatorships and democracies and the Pentagon uh, all yeah, it's around become, the world. It's become uh, our major export. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's become our major export, and that's a crime in and of itself. David Swanson, RootsAction.org. Thank you, David. Thanks, Tom. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to predict how Trump will behave based on prior behavior. And there are three main points that I see. One is that he will make irrational choices because he's emotionally infantile. He's not regressed. He just never grew up in the first place. Right. 
Uh, second point is that he has an abiding sense of his own worthlessness, and he substitutes money and getting up o- over other people for love. And he's something of a, an emotional black hole. He has an ever-growing need for attention, and negative attention is just as good to him as positive attention, which right. he will create by lying and uh, telling himself that people believe him. So when he says he wants to be impeached, he's telling a deeper emotional truth as far as I can see. And third is that he's going to do irrational things to his own detriment because his lifelong deep need is for attention from adults, and negative attention is just as good as positive. What happens around him is going to be uh, very interesting to see. I think we may have something like in the madness of King George, where his courtiers are basically talking to him most respectfully and ignoring anything he says in terms of uh, doing anything about it. So that's my synopsis on what will happen. It goes to impeachment, even if he's removed by the Senate, which at present doesn't seem terribly likely, but may happen as Republicans peel away. I think he will do some sort of bluster and try to declare that it's not valid and yeah. all that sort oh, of thing. He, he, of course he's going to do all that. My big concern is that he's going to do something uh, that he accused Barack Obama of. 2012 election. He tweeted before the election in the months of, back in September, October, as I recall, of 2012, several times that any minute now, Barack Obama is going to start a war with Iran so that he can go into the election as a war president, and war presidents always get reelected. And so, obviously, Trump has been thinking that way for at least a decade and probably much, much longer. I mean, this is an old trick, right? It's what Richard Nixon did to get his second term. George Herbert Walker Bush tried to do this with his invasion of Iraq. As his son pointed out to his biographer, his dad made the mistake of not still being at war when people went to the polls, and so Bill Clinton became president. This is something that Republican presidents seem to like to do. You know, George W. Bush did that for the 2004 election. And so that's my biggest concern, that he, that he declares a war someplace and it doesn't turn out to be a little or a regional war. It turns into a World War III kind of scenario. And Iran, I think, could certainly do that. The uh, simple and kind of tragic fact that for the last 18 years, we have continuously been at war. And in fact, we have expanded the number of wars. We've added, you know, Libya, we've added Syria. Now we're collaborating with the Saudis and Yemen. If we want to stop stupid wars, to use the phrase that Trump used on the campaign trail, that frankly, I think got him a lot of votes. I think a lot of people, you know, agree that many of these, well, you know, he came right out and said George W. Bush lied us into a war. He said that on the campaign trail. I think it's one of the reasons why he ate Jeb Bush's lunch. Because, you know, Americans know this, Republicans and Democrats, they know that George W. Bush is a war criminal who lied us into a war and should have been prosecuted for it. Actually, Dick Cheney seems to be the major force behind that. And what happened to him? Well, he, he, you know, Halliburton was failing. It was on the edge of bankruptcy. Halliburton is now worth billions. And his weird daughter is now in the U.S. House of Representatives. So the Senate or something, I, I, did she run for the Senate successfully? One or the other. Anyhow, I, you know, it's not, not something high on my list to keep track of the Cheney family. In fact, it makes me rather nauseous. This is just raw, naked corruption. The taking of the hostages in Iran. The taking of the, of the hostages happened November 4th of 79. And then a few months later, there was a campaign for presidency of Iran for the new or the new uh, president of Iran. More than 90% of the people who were running ran on the platform that they were going to free the hostages. You know, holding the hostages was a very unpopular position in Iran. And so this guy, uh, you know, Bonnie Sadr got elected president. And on this ticket of freeing the hostages, he went to uh, Khomeini, to the Grand Ayatollah, and said, OK, let's free the hostages. And Khomeini told him, we can't do that because we've got to deal with the Reagan campaign. Keep in mind, you know, this was Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan, 1980. We've got to deal with the Reagan campaign where we're going to get spare parts for all these American-made weapons that we've got in exchange for holding on to hostages until Ronald Reagan is president. And we're going to keep that deal. And sorry, Mr. Bonnie Sauter, I know you got elected on freeing the hostages, but it ain't going to happen. 
how many Americans do you think even know that story? That Bonnie Sauter in the Christian Science Monitor in an interview just came right out and said it. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind today? Everything Trump says is a lie. We know that. Right. But people are believing it. Even don't believe your lying eyes. And the other thing is with uh, Russia, the reason why he won't release his taxes is he borrowed money from Russia. I'm guessing he probably owes a lot of money to a lot of oligarchs, and I'm guessing that they're not all Russian, by the way. I'm, I, I would be willing to bet that you've got Saudi oligarchs in there, that you've got UAE oligarchs in there, that maybe Qatari oligarchs. Trump is just in debt up to his eyeballs, and, and probably to a lot of people who are connected to organized crime organizations in their respective countries. We know that he's been, you know, for, you know, ever since his big bankruptcies in the late 90s, he's basically been running a money laundering operation using New York real estate as a thing that can be used for money laundering, Corky. Apparently, there were only two major developers in New York City who were willing to sell condos or apartments for cash, and Trump was one of them. And, you know, if somebody walks in with $20 million in $100 bills and says, here, I want to buy an apartment, you know, most developers would say, you know, this seems a little sketchy. I got a problem with this. But Trump is like, cool. In fact, his son, Eric, was literally bragging about that fact. He said, you know, we're getting a lot of money from Russia. Well, actually, it was Trump who later said, and they pay cash. Well, I know. The guy who cook. He was in Manhattan. That's where the mob got their start. Yeah, the Italian mob. Yeah, and now you've got a substantial Russian mafia there, and there's probably a Ukrainian mafia, and there's, you know, I don't know if there's a Saudi mafia or not, but the question, Corky, I guess, becomes what percentage of Americans do you think actually understand your understanding that most of what Trump says is lies and that he's been used, and the Trump organization is probably broke, and that it's basically a giant money laundering operation? You think, do well, you think? not many, because I'm retired. I got all day to sit here and listen to different stations, you know. Yeah. So you're able to, to educate to, yourself. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people have that kind of time that I got. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so, and... Yeah. When I see something that, you know, just totally out tilt, I got to say something about it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think we all do. I mean, this is arguably the biggest part of the whole tag you're in, is help people get information, help them find sources for information, help them learn what's going on. This is, I think, one of our most important jobs, particularly now you've got, you know, Facebook uh, having all these, uh, you know, Republican-leaning executives who are, you know, that Judd Legum has been writing about and, and now allowing Donald Trump to tell just blatant lies, you know, at the same time that, <laughs> the governor of Missouri has got a guy working for him who's tracking women's menstrual periods in that state so they can go after women who might be having failed abortions, is their phrase, which is a what? It's just all very, very weird. Deborah in Marinisco, Michigan. Hey, Deborah. Yes, hello, Tom. Hi. I love your show. Thank you. And I, I watch it, and I, I learn so much history from you that it's amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I wanted to give a comment about with President, well, I don't even want to call him that, but Donald Trump, to put his his thing in about the military and giving this, this person back his medals and all that. Right. What kind of word that gives to other military people that, if they see someone doing something wrong, that they're not going to report it. It's going to be okay because they know nothing's, you know, nothing might not become of it. Well, and not only that, you might even, if you're a war criminal, you might even become a star on Fox TV. I mean, this is what the, the Secretary of the Navy said as he was leaving his job after basically Trump fired him for defying, for saying, I don't take a tweet as a presidential order. Exactly. And my husband, I'm proud to say he sacrificed his life. He retired at 24 years in the United States Navy. And when he seen this going on, he said to me, what in the world is this person doing to us? Yeah. You know, Donald Trump. What is he, he is, doing to our he, democracy? Yes, our republic? he is more like a dictator than anything else that I've ever seen. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective on that. Dolores in Blake Bay, Washington, watching on Free Speech. Hey, Dolores, what's on your mind today? I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, is he trying to lose our confidence in our military and the disrespect so he could hire his own 
military like the Blackwater or Cash is called? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it's more likely. I mean, Trump has been doing this with police for a long time. Um, you know, he shouts out to the local cops. Uh, you know, I'm with you. You know, I realize that the management doesn't like you beating up people, you know, perps when you put them in the car, but it's fine with me. You just rough them up a little bit. Remember that? I mean, you know, he actually said that in one oh, of his yeah. rallies. And, and I mean, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes, uh, you know, the, office, the senior people in police departments crazy because it's illegal. But the blue collar guys at the bottom of the food chain in the police departments, they love it. He's trying to get people who have power, not the kind of power that he has, not economic power or political power, but who have guns, basically, to love him. And I think he's breaking our military in order to have the enlisted people basically be on his side, possibly anticipating some future civil war. That's a very, very um, grim outlook. I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge, but I can't come up with a, another explanation for it. Dolores, thank you for the call. Thought-provoking question. Tim in Chicago. Tim, your thoughts? I hail from the other side. I'm a conservative that owns guns and believes in the Second Amendment as it is being applied by most gun owners today. And I found your positions fantastic. I found your perspective enlightening and encouraging. And Good. I just called to say I really hope that you get to have some kind of influence in this debate because the rhetoric and the actions out there on both sides have become so fever-pitched that... As I mentioned to you that night, I'm definitely going to write an article on that night, and I'm going to write a, uh, a critique of your book. And you know, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't hide the fact that they're both going to be fairly positive. I'm not going to pretend that you're you're an enemy of the state because you don't believe <laughs> everything I agree with. Because I'm a liberal. Um, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, you know, Tim, and my point is, I, you know, nobody's talking about banning guns. You know, it's uh, I, I'm a sports shooter. I like shooting guns. My my brother and I do it for fun in his backyard. Many people are talking about banning guns. Many, many, many I, Democrats. I don't know a single Democrat, Tim, who's ever said that. Honest to God, if you well, can name one Democrat who's ever suggested banning guns, I will, you know, I will publicly shame them. But I don't think well, you can name wasn't one. That, wasn't that Representative Stalwell at the presidential? He's talking about banning assault weapons, which, by the way, was the law of the land for 10 years and was voted for by both Democrats and Republicans. And an assault rifle is not a Ruger 10-22. Luckily, you do know a little bit about firearms. A 1911, which is on the cover of the book I'm holding right now called The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment by Tom Hartman, that's not an assault weapon. But anything semi-automatic by Stalwell and his side of the coin classifies as an assault weapon because they are, quote, semi-automatic, quote, unquote. Yeah. Well, an AR-15 is semi-automatic, and so is a Ruger 10-22, so is a 760. I mean, there's many, many guns that are semi-automatic. Yeah. That ignorant people should not be in charge of this debate. Yeah, so, like so is the uh, Taurus 40 caliber that uh, I'm, I'm shooting in my picture in the back of the book. Although I do think that we should be regulating semi-automatic weapons more aggressively than we do regular revolvers. And that's probably the one area, Tim, where you and I diverge in our opinions. Um, no, I, I would like to reach out and agree with you on some things. And, and I think that what I witnessed talking to a bunch of people during, you know, afterwards and, and uh, whatnot, is there's many, many, many innocent, honest people in the majority of us mm -hmm. are innocent and honest people in this gun debate that need to have the, the spotlight, not yeah. the radical. Yeah, we need to have a conversation about it. We really need a, I mean, you know, when 40,000 people are killed by anything, whether it's polio or guns, we need to have a national conversation about it. Tim, thanks a lot for the call. And, and thanks for being a reasonable conservative. Sometime call on something we disagree on and we'll, we'll try that being reasonable too. I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Today on the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Barbara Honiger's book, October Surprise. The October Surprise the book is about was the 1980 Reagan campaign led by Bill Casey, who Reagan later made the head of the CIA, but he was Reagan's campaign director in 1980, about their actions with the Iranian government cutting a deal where if the Iranians would hold the hostages throughout the election of 1980 to make Jimmy Carter look bad and weak, then if they won the election, they would sell weapons to Iran, which, of course, is a deal that they kept. We know of this as the Iran-Contra scandal. So I'm reading from the very last chapter. It's the epilogue, and it's titled A Kinder, Gentler Nation. 
President Reagan signed intelligence authorizations in 1984 and 1985, which were considered licenses to kill, according to top government officials. As we have seen, Oliver North and Amiram Nears' U.S.-Israeli covert operations were authorized by a still-secret accord, never revealed to congressional intelligence committees as required by law, which may have also authorized political assassinations in the name of counterterrorism. We have seen that Vice President George Bush, this is the elder, met with Amiram Nir in Israel in late 1986, when he could have signed the accord with Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, for whom Nir worked. Author Seymour Hirsch has charged Oliver North with being President Reagan's assassination planner. We've reviewed reports that North boasted that anyone who leaked or threatened to reveal the administration's secret Iran initiative would be killed, and that some of the North Secord Hakim team were reportedly involved in political assassinations under the umbrella of counterterrorism. Given this context, it's instructive to note what has happened to many of the individuals who were reportedly involved in or knew about the secret negotiations between Iran and the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign and or about secret U.S. arms deliveries to the Khomeini regime in the early 1980s. So then she goes through the list of people. Dead. William Casey, CIA director, who reportedly attended meetings in Paris, France on October 19 and 20, 1980 with Iranian officials and agents of French intelligence to arrange an arms for hostages delay deal with Iran. Dead. The Ayatollah Mohammed Beheshti, who reportedly sent a personal representative, according to one source, Jalal al-Din Farsi, to the pre-election Paris meeting of October 19, 1980, with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, and according to some reports, also with George Herbert Walker Bush. Shanti died in a bomb explosion at Islamic Republican Party headquarters in Iran on June 28, 1981. Dead William Buckley, CIA station chief in Beirut, and it continues. October Surprise by Barbara Hunter. Liz in Los Angeles. Hey, Liz, what's on your mind? I worked in the court system for a long time, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the judges, the older judges, all were GIs in World War II Uh and got their education through the GI Bill. Yeah. Up until 10, 15 years ago, you know, as my dad's generation is dying off now or at least retiring, but up until 10, 15, 20 years ago, probably, I don't know if it would be a majority or not, and I, I probably sh- I should look up the numbers. You know, what percentage of college students in the United States from 1946 or 47 or whenever the GI Bill was passed until I think it was 64 was the year it ran out? What percentage of college students during that period of time were going to school on the GI Bill? But it's got to be huge. And I think in every industry, I mean, NASA, a lot of NASA scientists. I remember when, you know, Apollo happened and we put a man on the moon, you know, and there was talk about NASA scientists who got their science degrees on the GI Bill. So, yeah, spot on. Liz, thank you for that. Julian in Clatskany, Oregon. Hey, Julian, what's up? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. I wanted to try to convince you to enter treason into that list because, in my opinion, we are at a state of war because Russia is intentionally attacking our political system and our voting system hmm. through, uh, through uh, cyber means. Okay? So we're in a cyber war, you're saying? We're in a cyber war, and we need to look at how our society needs to adapt our definitions of war to challenge what's actually going on in our society. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, I mean, I, I think it's important that we look at treason because, um, I mean, this is literally, they're, they're basically giving power to an outside country, mm-hmm. and the Republicans are definitely corrupt in this. And uh, it's just, it's mind-boggling that, I mean, in, when Obama came in, we had military people saying horrible things about him without any recourse. But Trump comes in, and we've got Russia that's helping him, and we hear nothing from our military about how we need to be facing this. It is weird, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it is weird. The, it's the, gratifying, actually, yeah. to me, but... Yeah. I mean, I was I was never a, a fan of the, oh, my God, we've got to be hysterical about, you know, the Soviet Union or the Russians or whatever. You know, I, I lived through the duck and cover, you know, in the 1950s as a kid in, in elementary school. 
And I think it was the Vietnam War that caused me to think that this is not, which was a proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union, to think that this is not the real danger to our society. I think the real danger to our society is, is basically right-wingers inside our society. But, well, yeah, um, what, but what we, has gone on is nationalists in all societies have been allied with Russia. He, well, it's not, it's not so much nationalists. It's, it's like the, the world oligarchic class. The billionaires of the planet have gotten True. together. And there's, by the way, there's a huge uh, data dump from one of these companies that does what the Panama Papers company did. I don't know if you've seen the, the, the new movie about the Panama Papers. You know, they make shell companies for rich people and help them hide their money so they don't have to pay taxes and stuff. And like a multi-gigabyte, maybe a terabyte data dump. And there's going to be some big stories coming up in the next few days about this. They're still at it. I mean, there is this class of billionaires who literally the word enough is not part of their vocabulary. And Yeah, uh, I mean, if we if we want to look at it on a, I mean, the billionaires are still going to be problematic. But right now, uh, a lot of them are invested in oil and their big oil yeah. I mean, the United States, yes, is big in oil, but the Soviet Union is using oil as a crutch in their economy. Yeah, or you mean so Russia, but yeah. It's very important but, to But my point, I, and I think we're saying the same thing, I think that the American right-wing billionaires, I, I don't want to portray all billionaires as, as terrible. I mean, look at Tom Steyer. But the American right-wing billionaires have more in common with the Russian or Ukrainian or Turkish right-wing billionaires than they do with average people in, in the United States. Well, yeah. I mean, average people in the United States won't do the things that these billionaires have done to get their money. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Julian, thank you for thank the call. You. Yep. Well said. Dieting stinks. Changing your diet alone to keep your New Year's resolution is a recipe for failure. So let me tell you what you need to help you succeed this year. Ridgizone. Developed by doctors and backed by two U.S. patents, Ridgizone is the only FDA-accepted product that includes OEA. OEA helps you feel full faster and burn stored fat while reducing your calorie intake, so adding Ridgizone makes it easy to resist those fattening foods that go straight to your hips or waist. After trying Ridgizone, dieters and doctors agree it's the easiest way to maintain or lose weight. So this year, remember that dieting alone is just too hard. The easy way to keep that resolution and get your weight under control is Ridgizone. Ridgizone is exclusively available at Ridgizone.com. Use the promo code Hartman with two N's to save up to 65% off your order. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Save up to 65% and get free shipping by using the promo code Hartman at Ridgizone.com. That's Ridgizone.com. Promo code Hartman. in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks to you, I became a precinct committee member. Hey, good on you, Paul. And uh, we call it Central Committee here in California. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was at the annual legislator barbecue, and I was cooking chicken and stuff, and I got in there, and we only had two cooks, so I was really tired. Normally, I would film it. But my congressman, John Garamundi, my representative, was a keynote speaker, and he floored the whole room. We were asking questions about nuclear weapons in Turkey. A couple people in the committee of where that was their specialty in the military. That was also my mm -hmm. specialty in the military. Mm -hmm. So we know a little bit more about it. And he straight up said that Erdogan is holding our nuclear weapons and our personnel hostage. Seriously? I don't. A congressman? Yeah, I'm, I'm not kidding. Congressman Joe congressman said this. Wow. Garamundi, John Garamundi. And yeah. I wanted to call and talk to Congressman Representative Markan about this or, okay, or Rukana yeah. because I'm, yeah. I'm freaked out over it. And yeah. if you really think about it, it makes sense. I mean, well, yeah, that, 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 now that may even be why you know, or how Erdogan was able to convince Trump to, to stab the Kurds in the back. Well, we have the Jared Kushner phone call that they overheard. Jared Kushner giving the green light to assassinate the Washington Post journalist. Right. Jared Kushner selling the enemies list. How to get $40 million you can't account for. He has a $40 million bank account. He doesn't know how it got there. I don't know how it got there. Is that Jared? Really? Yeah, Jared Kushner has $40 huh. million in a bank, 
and he's not telling anybody how he got it. He says, yeah. I don't know how it got there. Well, he got a billion dollars out of you know one of these. Out of invest- blockading Cutter. Yeah, exactly. Out of one of these investment groups that is uh, heavily funded by Cutter. So it's uh, you know bizarre stuff. And you know, well, we're going to reach Elena out, Chow. Paul. We're going to reach out to John Garamendes and see if he's willing to come on the program and talk about it. Sean is uh, contacting I, I, these people. I'd be speak. awesome. Yeah, I'd so, be awesome. Thanks a lot for the he call. Said Paul. It and we have a tape of him saying it. Yeah, well, it's you know I, I don't want to you know get into uh, he may he may have thought that it was a little you know more closed environment than it was, but but I doubt it. I mean, he's a politician; he should know that anything he says is is uh, you know there's a possibility that it's going to get picked up on, it's going to get carried out there. But um, you know, this is I've heard other people speculating about this. I've speculated about this. There was an article in the Financial Times last week speculating about this that I shared with you on this program. We have 140 nuclear weapons in Turkey. And if uh, Erdogan and his military have taken control of them or have encircled the uh, U.S. facility where we've got those nuclear weapons, and they're not just ours, by the way, they're, they're basically NATO weapons, um, then we have a serious problem. Boy, a lot going on in the world today, isn't it? Just a fascinating time to be alive. I am, I'm excited. Augusta in Laguna Miguel, California. Hey, Augusta, what's up? I called to talk about the Bay of Pigs, which I was a little girl and I remember it. And I remember looking at JFK afterwards and him saying, the buck stops here. I assume responsibility. How long has it been since we have had any leader with dignity, control, and understanding? And... It's really the idea of responsibility and management that he can look out and say, I'm driving this bus and I made this decision. Even though he was bullied into it, he understood leadership. And I was a child, but I remember JFK. Everyone knew the CIA set it up and all of that. Hell, he just got there. And he sat out there and he, he was the man. He took it. And I think he grew up that day in the eyes of a great deal of the American public. How long has it been since we've had a president or even a strong leader of anything in America? Yes, a statesman or, a, or said, a stateswoman. I the the buck stops here. Yeah, it's um, it's been it's been. I think. Well, I think Lyndon Johnson took a very principled stand with the civil rights acts and uh, oh, yes, you know Medicare sure. and, and all those And there things. have been instances. Yeah. I uh, disagree with your last part when you're talking about how bad the all those terrible conservatives and all the things that they did. Understand that conservatives mean many things. I've been a Republican since Dwight Eisenhower. I was six years old dancing. I liked Ike. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we are what our parents bring us up to be, and our communities around us bring us up to be in many ways. You can probably tell from my voice, I'm Southern. And the small C conservative has nothing to do with a lot of the neocon nonsense that has been going on. Oh, I agree. And and, 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 and and with the neoliberalism. I mean, my dad was a Dwight Eisenhower Republican, and he's got to be rolling. Remember what Dwight said? Watch out for the military-industrial complex. They yes. Will you yes. alive. There you go. And what have we done? We got right in bed with them. You're I mean, absolutely right. I, I worked in the campaign of George H.W. Bush full-time. I was mm-hmm. a full-time paid person, and I enjoyed it, and I believed in and I believed in him because I saw the way I had an international position at the time. Yeah. And I understood what the wall was. I understood what we were working into. I also had the benefit of many cultures. We get back, there was Bill Clinton, which was very much America-centered. And then we got George Bush. I mean, he never should have been nominated. Thank you for your comments and for, for sharing. I'm with you. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Listen, on this okay boomer phenomenon that's uh, occurring, yeah. If you bear with me for a minute, there's a very important linking that needs to happen here between these millennials and the boomers that they're frustrated with. Key distinguishing characteristic is safety, security, and continuity, which the boomers had in their employment, their homes, their pensions, things of that nature. Now, well, probably about we, half of the boomers. I mean, only we well, only yeah, hit 60% of America being middle class by 1980, and it's been a decline since then. It's now below 50%. But, but yeah, I'll no, give you that. And mostly the white boomers. But yes, I get your right, point here. Right. And, and that trickled down, pardon the use of that phrase, right. communities got stronger under a good portion of them coming 
into a working wealth right. through the boomer generation. And I'm Gen X. I'm, I turned 49 a couple of weeks ago, and I'm right between these people. Mm-hmm. And we were the generation that was rushed into college. Oh, everyone's, every high school graduate needs to go to college now, where a generation before, it was a select few. So these millennials are looking at us Gen Xers, a lot of us really beat up by student and other debt. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at us, and the parents who raised us, and they're saying, how did you screw your kids over? And they didn't. They were just along for the ride, the the corporate takeover that changed work in America largely over the last 40 years is who is to blame. And and these two groups should be united in in fighting that because, I I mean, they're they're family to each other. They're, They're grandparents and grandsons, and by the way, a lot of us Gen Xers are raising the kids of a lot of those youngsters who were into opioid problems and, and other problems. It's mm-hmm. really a, a tangling of generations, and it's all because of largely the economic collapse of our work life in America. There's no security, no future planning, so everyone's in kind of a panic, and we're all in it together. They need to realize that. Yeah, and there are two things that brought this about, by the way. One is that the Supreme Court in 76 and 78 ruled that money was speech and basically turned our entire political system over to billionaires and big corporations. And and, and they just decided to start screwing us aggressively. And, you know, I mean, right to the point of like, you know, airlines literally stealing pension funds and things like that. But then on top of that, the Supreme Court... Right. And also in the 70s, I think it was 73, I'd have to go back and look and see what year it was. But the Supreme Court adopted Robert Bork's theory of monopoly in a decision called GTE Sylvania. And Mm -hmm. what Bork said was... I remember my grandfather was a telephone employee. I remember the breakups. Yeah, there you go. And so this was post that. And now the Supreme Court has kind of made it the law of the land that... A monopoly is only a monopoly if it increases prices. If it increases prices to consumers, if it keeps prices low, it's not really a monopoly. Which is not what the people who wrote the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Clayton Antitrust Act or the or the Anti-Monopoly Act of 1954. Not what any of them had in mind. They were trying to protect small businesses. They were trying to protect local communities. They were trying to protect employees. They were trying to protect consumers. And price was irrelevant. But this was this idea that Milton Friedman came up with that really enamored the Republicans particularly Lewis Powell, and the Supreme Court finally ruled on, and that has really screwed us as well. Eric, thank you for the call. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We still have a bunch of people who want to vote on our question, what's the biggest lie Donald Trump has told? Randall in uh, Minneapolis, we're listening on 9.50 a.m. You want to weigh in on that? Well, the biggest lie is that before John Kennedy was assassinated, I was the Donald Trump. I was the poor Donald Trump. I lied about everything. I I, I see this guy coming up in the in the in the seventies and eighties. If it wasn't for you and your common sense views at looking at things, I would be a total wreck today. But I understand who Trump is and what he is and how he is, and, and it's just amazing to me. And the, the fact is, I like to keep things simple after it's all said and done. And his biggest lie is, trust me. There you go. Yeah. And he uses that phrase all the time. And I think that generally when he says, trust me, that's when he knows that he's telling a lie. Robbie in Portland. Hey, Robbie, what's on your mind today? We're living in that dangerous time because literally people on the Republican side believe what they want to believe. And then there's individuals. Uh, I think it's ironic because Democrats are in the same thing. And I'll get my point really quick. Like there's there's a lot of people that I'm talking to. And when I bring up that the DNC rigged a primary election in 2016, they say that's Russian propaganda. Well, no, uh, Donna Brazil wrote about it in her book. She wrote an apology to Bernie Sanders. It's a whole chapter in her book. Well, I know she was the head of the DNC. I'm saying a lot of Democrats, I know that, but I'm saying that a lot of Democrats think it's Russian propaganda, and that I'm a sexist when I say that Hillary Clinton rigged the election. But yeah, but uh, you know, at a certain point, Robbie, we've got to say that's water under the bridge. You know, let's let's learn from that. Let's not let's not make that mistake again. We're not able to discuss this. If we're not able to discuss this, isn't it going to happen again? Yeah, absolutely. That's but my concern for 2020. Well, I, yeah, so okay. I'm not, not trying to, to censor you. This. I mean, if I was trying to do that, I would have cut you off as soon as you said it. We have to acknowledge that there were serious problems with the Democratic primary, and you know, some of them were 
fall into the category of what you might call rig, and other, others of them just fall into the category of, um, well, I think, party dysfunction, really you know, and the party how... is still working through that dysfunction. Now we've got this situation where the uh, superdelegates won't vote until the second ballot. Well, with this big a field, odds are there's going to be a second ballot. So we're going to be back to arguing about superdelegates in another six or eight months. Just, you know, mark my words. And I think it's really unfortunate, but the party is moving in the right direction. I to see it move a little faster. Robbie, thank you for the call. John in Sunderland, California. Hey, John. The Electoral College gave Trump the presidency. I think that's what he's basing his. You think those tiny little ten or twenty thousand vote margins in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were actually not real? That they were the result of what ballot tampering or machine malfunction? In quotes. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes. Right. But, or uh, or being hacked by a foreign power. I agree with you. Yes, sir. Can you explain the Electoral College, please? Why is it still going? And, oh, it's still um, going because it's in the Constitution. And there is a way around it, but it requires legislation. Or it actually requires state governments. to. Get, it's an interstate compact. You can find all about it at fairvote.org. If enough states to equal 274 electoral votes, which is what it takes to elect a president, if enough states to equal that number of votes, say whoever gets the most votes nationwide, we will give our electoral votes to, because electors don't actually have to cast a, a vote in the Electoral College for the, for the person who wins the most votes. If they do that, then the Electoral College is essentially nullified. Otherwise, it would take a constitutional amendment, which ain't going to happen. And the problem is, all the democratically controlled states have said yes to this. It's the red states that are preventing it from happening. John, I've got to move along, but thank you for the call. Bill and Sebastian, Florida. Hey, Bill, what's up? We withdrew from the U.N. Treaty that concerned children's rights. That's one thing you should be impeached for, as well as uh, the voter purges in all the states. I'm sure he was complicit with Kobach. Well, he's not this, he's uh, not responsible for the voter purges. That's that. You know, I mean, that's he's well, he, part of he knew party about what was that. going on. I would think he knew what was going yeah, on. Yeah, but I don't think you can he impeach him specifically for it. I, I agree. It's a crime. In fact, I wrote a book about it that'll be coming out in the spring. It's called The Hidden History of the War on Voting. I'm with you. But all right, I one more thing. Tom. Yeah, go ahead. Greg, I mentioned that Greg Palast and Stacey Abrams are uh, in that court action down there in Georgia on C-SPAN, right. which I think is paramount in uh, our fight for decency in this country. Yeah. All right, then. Thanks, Tom. I'm with you, Bill. Thanks a lot for the call. You know, voter suppression, I think, is a crime against democracy. And if we had a right in the Constitution to vote... In, the, in Bush v. Gore in 2000, the Supreme Court, Rehnquist's ruling, he said there is no constitutional right to vote for president. Zero. We need to put that into the Constitution. Evan Greer, the Deputy Director of Fight for the Future, fightforthefuture.org, is on the line with us. Evan, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tom. Good to yeah, talk to you. Great to have you back with us. So facial recognition surveillance. Uh, first of all, you want to define some terms here? Sure thing. So facial recognition is a type of biometric surveillance where law enforcement or a private corporation essentially scans your face and then can match it against a database of photographs that they have. And of course, there's all kinds of databases of photographs, including the ones that the DMV collects for driver's licenses, but also ones that, for example, Facebook is assembling as we all upload uh, massive amounts of our own photos willingly to those types of corporate platforms. So this is a type of surveillance technology that has the potential to become incredibly ubiquitous and essentially allow governments to track their own populations everywhere that we go, assembling profiles of our religious beliefs, our political associations, more or less everything about us, because we can't leave our faces behind when we leave our homes. And I know in China, and frankly in the UK as well, although China and the UK use this information differently, there's yep. pretty much no place you can go, at least in any of the cities, where you're not continuously, 24-7, well, not in your bedroom, presumably, but although who knows if you've got a smartphone or a computer with a camera in it, where you're not under surveillance. I mean, every street has street corner cameras there, and they're not just used for traffic. They're used for facial recognition to track people. Is that, you know, how far along is the United States in having that kind of public infrastructure, publicly owned infrastructure, infrastructure available to police and government that that actually should be a legitimate concern for us. 
so that reality is really just around the corner unless we do something about it. And, you know, this technology is spreading incredibly quickly. The tech industry is being very aggressive at marketing it and selling it to law enforcement agencies. And law enforcement agencies are, are hungry for it. They want more power. They want more control. They want more ability to monitor people and track them. And frankly, you know, a lot of like local police chiefs and stuff, they just want to be able to brag and say, we have all the coolest new toys that are available on the market. And so that is happening despite the fact that facial recognition is repeatedly shown to be incredibly inaccurate. One study showed that the type of facial recognition you just mentioned happening in the UK was inaccurate up to 98% of the time. And what's worse, those inaccuracies aren't the same for everyone. An MIT study showed that facial recognition surveillance disproportionately and systematically misidentifies people of color and women, which could, has real-world consequences. This isn't just like, oops, the machine made a mistake. That mistake could land an innocent person in prison, could subject someone to police harassment or detainment or have someone hauled in for questioning just because a cold, inhuman algorithm basically pointed at them and said, that person looks like a criminal. So we know that facial recognition is already being used on some of these platforms. What do we do about it? What's the proposed, and also government is using this. In fact, that one of the big stories is that both ICE and the FBI apparently have been accessing the databases of photographs from DMVs, from Departments of Motor Vehicles, right. state by, on a state-by-state -state basis. And we don't know what they're doing with that information, but the states that allow driver's licenses to people who are not citizens and specifically flag them as not being citizens, so they can't use that driver's license, for example, to vote. I'm not sure you could even use it to get on an airplane. Those states' databases are basically giving to ICE, here's all the people that we know are not documented citizens these stories are coming out. So what is your suggested remedy? So my organization, Fight for the Future, just launched a brand new campaign yesterday at banfacialrecognition.com. We're the first organization that's calling for a complete and total federal ban on all forms of law enforcement and government use of facial recognition surveillance. And really, from my perspective, that's the solution here. The tech industry wants to skip the debate and totally avoid talking about should this technology even exist in the first place? Should law enforcement have these capabilities? They want to assume, yes, of course they should. Let's get to the question of how do we roll this out? How do we profit from it? And basically, how do we assuage people's fears? So that's why they're talking about regulation. From our perspective, there's no way to regulate this type of surveillance. It's surveillance that simply should not exist. I would put this on a list, a short list of technologies like nuclear and biological weapons that simply the threats that they pose to a free and open society, to people's basic human rights, far outweigh any potential benefits that they could have. And they frankly simply shouldn't exist. If we could go back in time and prevent humans from ever developing nuclear weapons, wouldn't we do that? Well, we can't go back in time, but that's where we are with facial recognition right now. And that's why we're calling for the government to ban it. Are you getting much purchase with this, much agreement? I mean, it seems to me like most Americans, you say facial recognition, and they just kind of shrug their shoulders or say, well, yeah, it's kind of cool how my phone organizes my pictures. You know, surprisingly, I would actually say that this is really resonating with a lot of people. I think there's something very visceral about the idea of having your face scanned and stored in a database that seems to be gripping people in a way that other forms of surveillance, like, for example, the National Security Agency's metadata or phone records collection programs, just didn't quite to bubble up in the same way. And interestingly, we're also seeing bipartisan appetite in Congress to actually do something about this. Well, that was my next um, question. Something, uh, you know, at an oversight hearing a little while ago, you've got AOC and Jim Jordan from the Tea Party agreeing that this technology is inherently dangerous and grilling officials from DHS about it. This is wow. one of those things that really does cut across the political divide and where I think there's both tremendous threat, a clear and present danger posed by this technology spreading very quickly, but also tremendous opportunity. We've also seen a lot of momentum at the local level. San Francisco just became the first city in the country to ban local government use of this type of technology. 
Somerville, Massachusetts quickly followed suit, and now a number of other cities are considering it. Legislation was introduced in Detroit to limit facial recognition surveillance there. So this is something that's growing and spreading in terms of a movement. But again, I think we're at a turning point. If we don't rise up as a society and say, no, this is not acceptable, we don't want to live in a world, we don't want our children to live in a world where they are constantly being watched by their government and corporations at all times. If we don't rise up and say that, then that's the world that we're headed for and we're headed there very quickly. Evan Greer with Fight for the Future. And what's the website for the new Band Facial Recognition site? It's bandfacialrecognition.com. And you can fill out the form there and easily contact your local, state, and federal officials calling on them to pass legislation to ban this dangerous technology. That is marvelous. Evan Greer, thanks so much for being with us again, Evan. It's great talking with you. Always great, Tom. Thanks so much. Yep. Have a great day. Susie in New York City. Hey, Susie, thanks for listening to WBAI. What's up? Hey, Tom. So great show. I wanted to comment on the facial recognition and also the broader topic of privacy and how unaware as an overall society we are of that. Yes. For example, in New York, we have about 50,000 kiosks installed. They're supposed to be free Wi-Fi and all that, but they're really spy stations. They have about, each kiosk has about 30 tracking devices installed, including cameras pointing in multiple directions, microphones, and you name it. And there's a lot of data collection going on. They're being managed by a private entity, and their terms of service agreement is so vague, like you could basically drive a truck through all the loopholes there. So the city is hiring private contractors to run basically Wi-Fi stations so the people who are too poor to afford you know, broadband into their house can come in and use them without parking themselves at Starbucks forever. And presumably these places have, particularly because they're serving low-income communities and maybe homeless communities, they've got security that you're saying is being misused. Am I recharacterizing I, what you're I saying? Would- I would think that would be the next step. We haven't seen any... Actually, no, we have seen evidence of that. There was a guy who went around to damage these stations Mm -hmm. because initially they said the cameras are not on. But then they circulated, you know, security footage of the guy doing this, and that proved that the cameras are on. Now, even Mm. worse, we have a commission on public information and communication, and it's chaired by the public advocate of New York City. And in, since this office was put in place, the public advocate has done zero. And we've called on the public advocate to do something about this and to actually start working right. with the commission. I would think and this would be the nothing. city council, Susie, if your concerns are legitimate, that these contractors are using their surveillance to spy on people's Internet activity. And they certainly have that ability, particularly since the Republicans have now destroyed net neutrality. It's been over a year. So any entity whose computer you're using can literally get every password, or they could do it with a camera over your shoulder. That the city council would specify in the contract that this may not happen, or for that matter, they could even pass a law against it in New York City, and then those those people would not only be subject to losing their contracts, they'd be subject to going to jail. Well, that's, that's where I problem. would put the pressure. They haven't. They haven't. And we've right. called them on that as well. I mean, there's a group called the Privacy Board Advocates and Rethink Link NYC. Right. And the office that's really in charge of this that can point out and recommend policy on that is COPIC, the Commission on Public Information and Communication. And even now, the COPIC Twitter page, which is one of their very few online presences, they still have the name of the previous public advocate in there. So it hasn't even been updated. Like, they're they're just there for decoration or something. Yeah, which is unfortunate. So, uh, Susie, you know, for people listening in New York City, you know, pay attention. Susie may well have an interesting point. I personally don't know about the details here. Dominic in Argyle, New York. Hey, Dominic, what's on your mind today? Oh, good. How are you, Tom? I've called many times, as you know. I've even gone so far as to suggest you should run. We've differed on the Second Amendment right and where that all goes and so on. That this new thing with the insurance. Right. I've heard you as an advocate for it. Can you tell me, and then I'd like to respond, can you tell me what would be the goal of having every gun owner have to, by mandate, purchase insurance? It's liability insurance. The goal would be when you have a gun in your home, the risk of somebody dying in your home who is not a bad guy goes up 500%. So if a neighbor kid comes over and finds your gun and accidentally kills himself or whatever, that 
that family would not be left bereft. That's the main goal. It's the same reason that you have car insurance. Most people, when they get in accidents that kill other people, don't do it because they intend to kill somebody. It's an accident. That's the definition. And that's why we have liability insurance. That would be the primary goal. Okay. The secondary goal would be that the insurance companies would do something that we don't want government doing. We do not want, and this is conservatives, liberals, right across the spectrum. We do not want government looking into our private lives and determining whether or not we represent a risk of committing a crime or using a gun the wrong way. But there's an entire industry that does this for a living. It's the insurance industry. You want to buy life insurance? They're going to ask if you smoke. They're going to look into your life. You want to buy health insurance? You want to buy car insurance? They're going to ask you, how many DUIs do you have? So if you want to buy gun insurance, and you've got two d convictions for domestic violence, good luck, you know, and uh, good luck getting insurance, which would prevent you from having the gun. And that's the second reason. And Dominic, I'm sorry we're out of time. If you want to disagree with me on any of that stuff, you know, call back on Friday and we'll pick it up. But I'm, I'm out of time. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It actually does require you Yes, specifically you to get involved. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.